is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Transition continues in Afghanistan, but the fighting goes on. Renewed calls to postpone cuts to the army until the reserve force is built up. What's the future for NATO? And retirement plans for HMS Illustrious Museum, Hotel or Razorblades? She will be a very, very difficult proposition to fund as a heritage object. Earlier this week, a British soldier was killed in Afghanistan. Lance Corporal James Brynan was from 14 Signal Regiment Electronic Warfare attached to the Task Force Hellman Brigade Reconnaissance Force. He was shot while on patrol northeast of the provincial capital Lashkar. It's been six months since the last British soldiers died in combat. I'm joined by Colonel Stuart Tootle, who commanded 3 Para, the first British unit to go into Helmand in 2006, and also by our defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to you both. Uh, Colonel Tootle, first of all, it's often said that the most dangerous time for British soldiers in Afghanistan is immediately after a handover. Is that the case? Well, it can be the case because obviously the incoming troops are less experienced than the outgoing troops. But we have to remember that uh, brigades who've been in Afghanistan have taken casualties throughout the time that they've been there. So even one needs to be very cautious about saying, you know, this is the most dangerous time. And our army is very professional and they will be sighted on the wrist throughout their tour. Having said that, this being the final Operation Herrick underway now, what are the potential dangers of the last tour, do you think? The real danger is probably that in the process of handing over more and more responsibility to the Afghanistan security forces, um, that there are some gaps in capability that may lead to certain risks as British troops are withdrawing. What kind of gaps do you think? Well, if, for example, um, th- there is a logistic provision that the, the British are currently providing or a planning capability, um, suddenly you get that transition over. That can become a more risky process. But I think you also have to back that up by the fact that the ASF, the Afghan Security Forces, have actually been remarkably successful in many ways. Now, that doesn't mean that they are exactly where they need to be, um, but they have held virtually all of the gains that they took over from coalition forces in the last 12 months or so, and they have taken casualties doing that as well. But I think there's cautious optimism that they're achieving more than perhaps a lot of people thought they would. Mm. I know you said that that, um, casualties can happen at any time during a a tour, but is there a possibility, though, that soldiers can let their guard down a little bit and perhaps get tired or relax a little towards the end of a tour? I tend to think it's actually the converse. I think that people probably, if anything, up their game when they're sighted on going home in the coming days or weeks. Um, for obvious reasons, and if anything, you know, that gives them a new sort of spurt of energy. Yes, there is always a danger that when troops become tired, uh, complacency might creep in. That's just a fact of life of operations. But I don't think that because this is the final operation, we're going to find British soldiers are dropping the guard. Probably quite the converse, I would have thought. And as far as British soldiers are concerned, we haven't heard much about fighting in Afghanistan recently, but it does seem it's still going on from what's happened this week. Well, yes, of course it is. But the brunt of it's now being taken on by the Afghan security forces who are now launching and conducting, almost on their own, some very large operations, operations of a scale which would have been unthinkable even two years ago. 
So that actually shows that they are having a degree of traction. But of course, the campaign is not over and it won't be over for the Afghans for some time. And they are not probably quite at the pinnacle of operational capability that everyone would like them to be. That's pretty understandable because they're a pretty new and immature army. Christopher Lee. It, it, it strikes me, and Colonel, I might get this wrong, but um, these guys that go to Afghanistan, let's say on this new operation, this new deployment, uh, most of them, it, it's not their first time. So they know the environment, they know what to expect, they know the routines and the procedures. Second part of it is, I sometimes wonder whether the handover is as is a learning process. You know, this is what we learned on our, uh, our deployment, uh, you ought to be looking for this. And the third part, I wonder, when you've got the Afghan army doing so much and successfully, it does mean that the British guys are not necessarily... Uh, picking up the human that they might otherwise have picked up and therefore you get to the fourth part of this, which we haven't mentioned, and that is the determination of, uh, let's call them Taliban or whoever, to want to make a point and say we chased them out of Afghanistan. Yeah, there's quite a lot in that, Chris. I mean, first of all, I think handover takeovers are conducted incredibly professionally. I mean, I've been through uh, many in my time in the army. Uh, I think it's... um it's perhaps wrong to say that human falls down because you've got so many Afghans who pick up things. And even when we had very few Afghan troops in places like Sangin, it was amazing what they could pick up because they were in many ways related to the local community, if not directly. At least they understood the cultural dynamics which we wouldn't necessarily pick up. So I don't necessarily think that that's a disadvantage. I think the other thing to remember is that you know the Afghan forces... The security forces have been very successful compared to a lot of the prognosis of how they would perform, how would they behave. Yes, they're not ready to completely on their own yet, which is why we've still got British forces there. And, of course, there is a question mark about whether we're leaving too early. My personal view is I think we needed to stay the course a bit longer. But how much not, longer, Colonel Tootle? Well... It's difficult to put a figure on that, but I feel that the commitment should have extended for several more years. I completely, I'm a realist, I accept that that's probably not politically sustainable with the public back here, but I believe we also made a commitment. That said, the ASF are being more successful than a lot of detractors initially thought, but there is still some way to go and there are still, of course, risks and, you know, the campaign is not over and it won't be over for some time yet. Do you know much about this area where Lance Corporal Brynan was killed, Kakaran? I don't know Kakaran personally. Uh, we operated to the south and north there uh, in the Goresh Valley, so I had troops down in Goresh, uh, not too far away from that area. Uh, very similar to areas where we operated, though. Um, close country, uh, undoubtedly a degree of insurgent activity in that area in March 2009, Operation Mushtarak, and also... Uh, before that, Panzer's Claw was a huge NATO uh, effort to clear that area and then begin to hand it over to the Afghans. But in a counterinsurgency, you can never clear an area completely by military uh, means alone. Indeed. Um, Christopher, you were mentioning about um, the Taliban, uh, or the enemy, as it were, uh, preparing for perhaps, uh, suggesting preparing for a spectacular towards uh, the combat, end of combat operations in Afghanistan. What, what do you think we are going to see? Well, we're seeing it already. Um, I mean, there is a traditional point about this, isn't there, that the insurgency has to show success stories. 
And it's always been the idea that we kicked them out. I mean, we had that to some extent with the militias in, in southern Iraq, in the, in, in, the, in the Basra district, wanting, a lot of them wanting to say, look, we got the Brits on the run sort of thing. But there's another side of it, and what is happening, and that is the politicalization of the relationship between the present uh, Afghan government and a lot of the governors and also the insurgency and to have that authority, the military authority, you don't just sit back if you're in the insurgency and say, OK, we've reached this point where we may even actually have an Afghan president who is um, a former leader of Taliban, like Mullah Omar or whatever. You don't do that. You keep up the pressure. And you keep up the pressure. You not only keep it up on the British, you keep it up on everybody, including the Afghan National Army. And that becomes extraordinarily important on the point of... Are we getting out too early? It would have been interesting, you know, the, the elections are next year. It would have been interesting to sort of have a handover of military responsibility that went on for, let us guess, 18 months after the new presidency and seating that in. Uh, Stuart Tootle, um, you mentioned yourself about uh, you would have liked the British troops to stay on longer in Afghanistan. When you look back to what you achieved there when you first went in, does that make you disappointed, frustrated about your contribution? No, it doesn't. I mean, you know, I signed up to be a soldier. Um, the British public expects me to go and do the nation's bidding. So I have no qualms of any of the operations I've been sent on. I think that it would be on reflection, and now I'm a civilian, so I'm a member of the public, that we want to see it through. But then I also take the balance view. It's not me going out there and fighting. It's not a member of my family. So I can understand the political imperative. I can understand the way a lot of soldiers will be thinking about this as well. But if we're going to answer the question of has it been worth the investment of blood and treasure, I don't think that's something we can do in the next 12 months. That is something that we're going to be measuring over the next five years. All right, Colonel Stuart Toodle, thank you very much for your time today. The government is facing renewed calls to postpone cuts to the regular army until it's built up enough reservists to replace the full-time soldiers. MPs have been debating the issue in the Commons, asking for a delay until the plans can be proved cost-effective. Today, the Daily Telegraph published what it says is a leaked MOD internal document, warning of potential damage to the army from disappointing recruitment to the reserves. Christopher, what do you make of all of this? Well, it's, it's utterly predictable, isn't it? I mean, we've been saying, and we're not the only ones who've been saying this, the whole process seemed to be a bit uh, less than thought through. What? Let, let's go back to where it was. Um, round about 100 and something, 102, whatever, uh, 1,000 uh, soldiers. And uh, you cut it back to 82,000. You say, well, we make up a shortfall with the Reserve Army, and, uh, and we call, which we then called the TA. And the idea was that you, you, re, you increase it from around about 15,000 to 30,000. Well, the irony was that every serving and past CO of the TA could have said to the Chiefs of Staff, now, hang on a minute, Gov, you can't do it like that because the 15,000 we've got were hard enough to get anyway. Do you not think they said that anyway? Uh, well, I don't know. They did. I mean, they appointed a one-star, a major general, the Duke of Westminster, uh, to sort of think through what you did with the reserve forces. And I think there's an idealised sort of uh, what you could do. Let's think of what it's all about. Um, before Afghanistan, for example... A guy joined the TA, uh, turned up on, let's say, a Friday night for weekends training, drove a, um, a, a lorry up and down the M11 for the whole weekend. The company that employed him got a better bloke or her on the Monday morning. That was fine. Then you get into a war 
then you need your reserve forces. It becomes a different thing. They go off for six months and then we got the old story. The company said, well, how long are you going to be aware? Not sure you can leave your job open. What about your career prospects, etc." But fundamentally, there's something else. There are, say, let us say, 15, 12, 15,000 soldiers, TA. It's not counting the RNR or the RFER. Uh, that's about all the people that want to join. And you, sometimes you have to be realistic and say, we've got quite a lot of percentage of the public who, who want to join. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't get any better than this. Having said that, the, the Ministry of Defence has said it's confident you can get the required numbers. Presumably you disagree with that. Um, well, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying I haven't seen the evidence of it. Okay. And I've never seen the evidence of it. I mean, having sat on an employer a military liaison committee and discuss these very things, we always reckoned that as far as the army was concerned, the TA, 15,000 was about the limit. Now, there's an idea at the moment that the top 100 companies should employ uh, 100 of their staff, each of the 100 of their staff who are in the TA. Okay, well... That's not you... how they got to be the top 100 companies. We're in this situation, as people say, we are where we are. Do you yeah. think the government should put the put this, the whole plan on hold while they carry well, on recruiting? Well, the restructuring of the regular forces? Well, Indeed. it's very difficult to do that because all the process is already already through. You know, we spent a, a load of time actually talking about redundancies, who's going, which regiments are going, um, which ones are being amalgamated, which identities are being lost. That process... To suddenly turn it's unstoppable, bit. basically. You're saying well, well, it'll cost it, too much? If, if you stopped it, you'd have to stop it for years. I mean, you can't, you can't do this. I think it, it, it's a wild idea. It's a reaction. It's a political reaction idea. The truth is, if you want to, uh, to replace some of the regulars with some uh, of TA or a reserve army, you've got to go about it another way or you've got to think uh, some, something else again. You've also got to remember that when they said we're going to cut our troops from 102,000 or whatever right down, they weren't recruiting 102,000 anyway. Mm. And also they still haven't worked out what sort of forces they're going to need for the future. So we're only at the about a third way through this great debate. One of the problems identified as a concern among potential recruits in this leaked memo is their mental health, which apparently could be compromised if they join. Dr Hugh Milroy is the Chief Executive of the Charity Veterans Aid, and he joins us now. Um, Hugh, hello. Hi. Um, What do you think about that particular comment? Well, like Christopher, uh, (laughs) this was utterly predictable. Um, Veterans Aid gets approached a lot from the media, and, and consistently over the last three years, the first thing the media say to you is all about mental health, PTSD. We know it exists, but actually for Veterans Aid in the front line, it's quite a rarity. But the media, people who are coming to us, members of the public who deal with us, it is the, it's almost linear now. The but do you really of this, think uh, fears of mental health problems is putting people off signing up to the reserves? Well, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't let my children join up. If yeah, but was people, people join the army, join the reserves, they know they might die. Well, sh- in fact, that's, that's always the way I put it. You know, if, if you're not joining the ghetto guys here, you've actually got something to do. So uh, there is a bit of naivety, but there's been speculation. that uh, uh, Mark Francois last week uh, announced a meeting at King's College. There are now 370 79 charities, uh, service charities, just dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so, from my perspective, it's out of control. And and no wonder parents, you know, would would be thinking, well, would we let uh, little Johnny or little little Jenny join up? Because if that's what's being portrayed... So you reckon it's the parents rather than the actual individuals? Because uh, I'm I'm just trying to put myself in the position of someone who's considering joining the army. If I'm prepared to go to war and pay with my life, I'm not going to be thinking, am I going to get PTSD? 
Well, exactly. I mean, and, and you know, for the good of the nation, for the defence of the realm, we must have res- resilient and robust forces. But the continual pre- uh, media portrayal of us as, as damaged goods isn't good for anyone at all. But what I'm saying is that the media portrayal wouldn't put me off. Well... Clearly, the evidence is there. Something is something has been identified, and and certainly that the the identification of mental health issues has certainly been something that ties in with what we've been seeing over the past three or four years. Christopher, there's an irony here, isn't there? And that is that the wonderful treatment from the battlefield uh, trauma treatment to what goes on in Birmingham. Um, <clears throat> to increasing the the health of people who otherwise would be dead and increasing the health of otherwise of people who otherwise would have mental traumas for the rest of their life we've we've advanced so far on this that everybody understands it and everybody sees it and it's now seen as a deterrent because we're holding up people and saying this could be you when just 10 years ago People join the TA, for example, uh, just to go away for a fortnight's camp, get a bounty, and it was a a reasonable life to be, um, I don't mean a toy soldier, but there weren't that many people actually having to go to war. Anecdotally, uh, Hugh Milroy, what what do the veterans say to you about this restructuring of the army and the greater reliance on reserves? Well, I mean, it's coming across very strongly, the the utter confusion confusion about what's happening. Uh, People can't understand what's going on, why is the army shrinking so fast? Uh, And really, you know, whilst I understand the point that, you know, it's almost unstoppable now, I think we've got to have a dramatic rethink now about where this is going because we cannot let things, uh, you know, slide that far that they're irrecoverable. All right, Hugh Milroy, Chief Executive of the Charity Veterans Aid. Thanks for your time today. Still to come ahead of the NATO Defence Minister's meeting, we ask what's the future for NATO and what's next for HMS Illustrious? Could she be preserved as a tourist attraction? Next week, NATO Defence Ministers will meet in Brussels amid fresh calls for Europe to have its own dedicated military force. Radek Sikorski, the Polish Foreign Minister, who's widely tipped to replace Baroness Ashton as the EU Foreign Affairs Representative next year, believes Europe needs to confront the global security threat that America is unwilling to take the lead in facing. So, Christopher, what do you make of this? It's interesting why he's been saying it now. Uh, because we've been saying it, I say we, the, uh, both sides of the Atlantic have been saying that we've got to have a look at the role of NATO in the future. Indeed. Right from the beginning, 1949, the Americans actually didn't want to join NATO. Pug Ismay, who was the first, um, who the first Secretary General, said, well, the purpose of NATO is to keep the, the Russians out, the Germans down, and the Americans in. And that is more or less this sort of tale up until 1991. With what's going on in America, America's not slinking away... They're not wanting to be part of that European setup uh, again, and therefore Canada would probably go uh, on the move. We're moving towards the time when the whole idea of a European army could again really be on the cards and, and gradually happen. Where would its headquarters be? Ironically, in NATO headquarters in Brussels. <laughs> Where would its uh, its wiring diagram be? NATO headquarters in, uh, in, in Brussels, the only thing it wouldn't have is American commander-in-chief. So will they be asking, has NATO got a future, or will they be tiptoeing around that question? Um, they are beginning to ask one other question, is that they believe for the moment NATO has got a future, um, but they believe very, very strongly that national governments are not explaining that future 
to their publics. And when you think about, well, uh, nine, uh, 2014, people, NATO forces included, pulling out of Afghanistan, will publics be actually saying, why are we spending? Will there be as much uh, support for NATO forces? NATO as a concept, and Britain's part especially, in, that, in those forces, and it's a, it's a very, very big ask at the moment, and it's going to take years to resolve. How serious is this idea of a European Defence Force? Um, is it viable? It is not viable at the moment. But if you look at Europe, if you look at the European Union, then you get one particular thing. A lot of people that go to Europe, let's say foreign ministers go to European Union uh, foreign ministers meeting, the next week, what are they doing? They're going off to uh, a NATO foreign ministers meeting a lot of people are members of both so politically it wouldn't be difficult except when so they could they coexist uh well is it worth it no i don't think they could coexist i think well they do in in, at the moment they do exist Uh, but no they wouldn't coexist as two sort of uh, military organizations i think what could happen is that the europe the eu would take over the strength of it all okay christopher stay with us HMS Illustrious, the last of the old carriers, will be decommissioned late next year after 32 years of distinguished service. The Ministry of Defence is inviting private companies, charities and trusts who are interested in buying her to come forward with ideas for her future use. But they've made it clear they'd like all or part of the ship to be developed for heritage purposes. A little earlier, I spoke to Bill Ferris, Chief Executive of Chatham Historic Dockyard Trust, and asked him about his work preserving one of the most, one of the most well-known destroyers of all time. HMS Cavalier uh, came to us after a long and chequered history of of moving around the coast of Britain trying to find a sustainable home because she's a very important vessel and has subsequently been designated as the Destroyer Memorial, uh, a a memorial to 11,000 men who lost their lives on World War II destroyers and 142 vessels like her. So... She has a a national significance, and the reason that she came to us was that we happened to have three dry docks available, um, one of which we've now converted to be a wet dock in which she sits. So her coming to us was effectively a very cost-effective location. You you say cost-effective, but it must cost quite a lot. We spend about £150,000 a year just in pure maintenance, but across our very small fleet of three ships. But, of course, that doesn't include the cost of the management team and the visitor services team and all the rest, which are used across the whole of the 80-acre site. The problem, certainly with smaller ships like HMS Cavalier or the O-Class submarine, is that the throughput that you can get through them is quite small, and you still need to have that kind of full-blown tourism team around them. So you, they don't earn their keep, as it were? It's terribly, terribly difficult for, for a, an individual vessel to do so. And even HMS Belfast, as an example, moored on the Thames, prime location. Every however many years, let's say eight years, she needs to go off and be dry-docked and towed and all the rest of it. It, it's not an undertaking taking to be taken lightly, frankly, taking on any vessel. What about HMS Illustrious then? Obviously much bigger. Um, I guess you couldn't keep it. We, we, I, I, I'm tempted to say, fortunately, the River Medway is too, too small for her to come up. Hmm. Um, but you'd no, like to if you could then? No, we, we wouldn't. Um, we, as a charity, our primary purpose is 
is the preservation and, of the dockyard and the education services that relate to the dockyard. And in my view, and it is my personal view, after 13 years of experience here with ships, she will be a very, very difficult proposition to fund as a heritage object, if you like. So what, what, what options do you think? What do you think is the most sensible thing to do with her? Uh, am I talking unlimited funds? <laughs> I don't know. I, I suppose you can have your, your, your dream option and your actual sensible option. OK, well, my, my dream option would be to refit her and keep her in service. Um, the British government is, in, in my view, probably the only organisation capable of funding a ship of that size um, in the long term. And, and the, the practical option? The practical option... I mean, if, if you could find a grouping of, of ships where there's shared management... I mean, I'm, I'm not suggesting this for a moment, but let's, let's pick somewhere like Portsmouth with, you know, facilities close at hand and all the rest. That, in my view, is the only feasible option for her. But I, I still worry that the true public interest in her will be insufficient to sustain... Christopher, her. what do you think? Well, 22,000 tonnes. A, where do you park her? Secondly, um, where you park her becomes very important because has it got a f footfall of tourists who will actually go and see her? Mm. Um, <clears throat> and Bill's thinking no. They well, wouldn't Bill, be no. I reckon, is thinking no. And when you go aboard uh, Cavalier, you can go around Cavalier by yourself and you find your way around and it's like going through a ship and you can stand on the open bridge deck or you can see what the officers used to eat, etc. Um, illustrious is not long ago that's one of the other problems. It also presents a huge, huge, I mean, apart from the financial side of it, the upkeep. You let a school party uh, free in illustrious, you probably lose them. She's a huge ship. And so what do you do with people when you pass them through? And the truth is, apart from standing on the flight deck, uh, which is not really a flight deck anymore, but apart from that, they get themselves blown over the side. So apart from standing on the flight deck, you don't actually get much sense of being in a ship, uh, as you would say in Cavalier. Mm -hmm. Cavalier is a brilliant ship. You can tap the sides of Cavalier and say, I know this ship did 42 knots. I, th I think that's a really good point in general. And the, the British public love, love ships to look at, but don't necessarily want to pay to go on that All right. is but an issue. Bill Ferris, thank you very much for your time today. One man who is paying to go on board is, uh, is Christopher. You're going on uh, on board yourself, I aren't should, you, Cavalier? I should be there on Monday. I was on, I was on the original committee trying to save the Cavalier. Send us your pictures. Uh, I'll send you the pictures. And the other thing, if you want something to do with illustrious, razor blades. All right. <laughs> Bill Ferris, thank you. Thank you. This is BFBS. You say the most outrageous things, Christopher. One has to. Six-pack. Time for the six-pack. Let's look ahead and uh, what we've got to look forward to in this next week. A well, lecture in Sandhurst. Lecture in Sandhurst. Very special lecture by uh, Osang Shoshi the, of, of, of Burma. She's going there. It's the second time she's been there to give a lecture. Um, they're lucky. The cadets, uh, junior officers, etc. This will be a great thing. It's What's she like freedom. to say? She's all, it's all about freedom. It's all about freedom and moderation. And it's not 
and, and the idea that uh, crises are not necessarily solved by military means, which they're taught from day one, but then they're sent off to solve them by military means. Argentina. Argentina, their midterm election's just coming up, uh, and the leader, uh, La Cristina, is in hospital, having her head drained of blood. Mm. Uh, Falkland Island still an issue in that in, in that uh, election, so the Falklands are going to be on the, on the, in the news again in about two weeks, three, three weeks' time. Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat, you know, the Palestinian leader, his body was ex- and they found traces of polonium-210 on his clothes. Confirmed uh, traces. Uh, the Russians are sort of bleating about it, right, left and centre. And, of course, that was the drug, or that was the stuff that was used to kill the ex-KGB officer, Litvinenko, in, in London. The Philippines. Philippines. They want the Americans back. They want Americans back, an American military presence, to eyeball the Chinese. And they're really getting upset about the Chinese, and they find the Chinese threat, uh, Chinese uh, absolutely threatening. The Libyan Prime Minister, Al Zaydan? Uh, he's Ali, saying, sorry. Yeah, he, uh, Ali Zaydan is saying there's evidence that, gro- uh, that groups, like militia groups, the people that try to, uh, that try to kidnap him, uh, are trying to turn Libya into a Somalia-type state. That's basically very, very bad. And Trafalgar Day. Yeah, Monday is Trafalgar Day, 21st of October, when the little blessed Admiral uh, Nelson died. Uh, everybody says, oh, England expects uh, to do your duty. I like this other quote. Firstly, you not looking at anybody. Firstly, you must always implicitly obey orders without attempting to form any opinion of your own regarding their propriety, even if I say them. And thirdly, you must hate a Frenchman as you hate the devil. No comment. That's it for this week. Christopher, thank you. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS.